Hello, my name is Eva, and today we continue the history of the Justinian plague. Last time, we left off as the Emperor Justinian caught the dreaded pestilence in 542. Not much is known about the Emperor's sickness, though contemporary scholars speculated that he must have contracted it moving amongst his military men, who themselves were coming in and coming out of Constantinople, back from or going on campaigns. Justinian's symptoms aligned with the descriptions of other plague victims. High fever, bubus under armpits, and he was, according to the physicians, severely stricken for several very fateful days. And as Justinian lay sick, the citizens of Constantinople waited with bated breath. Very late in the epidemic, Justinian had ordered free bread to be handed out. This gesture, as crucial as it was, had also brought with it a black market upheld by corruption and brutality. Justinian had also decreed that troops should assist in collecting the dead, and so they did as they collected the dead and stuffed them into collective pits. They stuffed them into city tower walls, and the soldiers stuffed them onto boats which were set adrift in the Marmara Sea. But the soldiers were restless, not overly fond of such duties which they deemed unbecoming of a warrior, and citizens rightly wondered if the soldiers might turn from helpers to devastators if the emperor died and a fight for power broke out, as it inevitably did in the transition of power in the Byzantine Empire. For power in this empire was of a volatile nature. Of the 88 emperors and empresses who managed to secure the crown and rule Constantinople, only 47 of them would die of natural causes. So what violent crises might arise from the emperor dying in the midst of a society-breaking plague, which, according to the contemporary scholar Procobius, killed from 5,000 to 10,000 people a day. The breakdown of law and order, combined with the ignition of a power struggle if the emperor should die, might in itself have imploded the city from within. But the external threats which Constantinople faced in the year of 542 might just as well have exploded onto the city walls as the city was weakened and left defenseless without its battle-experienced emperor to guide them. For Justinian had led his empire into war from the very start of his reign, and those whom he had battled against now saw at Constantinople on its knees. From the moment Justinian became emperor in 527, 
his foreign policy had had two focal points. One saw him look westwards with the aspiration to conquer the lands formerly held by the Western Roman Empire, which had since 476 been under Germanic rule. The second focus was directed eastwards, with Justinian fighting the Persian Empire with the ambition to curb that mighty empire's expansion. The first focus was grounded in Justinian's dreams of being emperor of a once again united Roman Empire, and his dreams were legitimized by religious argument. For the Vandals and the Ostrogoths, who now moved and ruled in Italy, had in large numbers converted to Arianism. Now, that is Arianism with an I, not a Y. But the Byzantines held to the traditional beliefs of the early Christian church. It is, sadly, beyond the scope of this podcast to retell the absolutely fascinating history of the early Christian church and its many, many offsprings. Suffice it to say that Arianism was an early Christian movement which held that God the Father was superior to Jesus, God the Son, whom God the Father had made. Opposed to Arianism was the position taken by the early Latin Church in the West and the Greek Christian Church in the East, which upheld that Jesus is as the Father in might and godliness. These distinctions, which we today might think of as minor, fueled a great deal of the very violent religious turmoil during Justinian's reign, and the wars in the West were rhetorically framed around these religious disputes. And, for good measure, Justinian added rightful vengeance to his caesar's belly, his course for war. For Justinian had in years past been what one might call a cautious ally of an Ostrogoth empress, Amalasunta, who was killed by her rivals for favoring Roman culture over her native Germanic traditions. Her death in 535 had given Justinian a pretext to invade Italy in a hard-fought conquest of the Roman lands, or reconquest, as Justinian, who saw himself as a Roman emperor, might have worded it. Simultaneously, the Persians on the Eastern Front had, after very tentative peace treaties years before, started to once again encroach on the eastern provinces of the Byzantine Empire. And by 541, Persians had invaded several key areas, such as ancient Mesopotamia by the Tigris River in modern-day Iraq. In early 542, a Byzantine campaign was launched to win back this area. But Ultimately, it would end in stalemate. At the same time, in the spring of 542, and this is at the very height of the plague, 
Justinian sent his western army to Italy to battle the army of Totila, the Ostrogoth king. The two armies would join battle at Faventia in 542, with Totila's armies soundly defeating Justinian's. This Battle of Faventia would be pivotal in the resurgence of Gothic resistance to Roman imperial aspirations and mark so many troubles for Justinian in the years ahead. But that was in the future. For in that very spring of 542, Justinian fell ill, afflicted by the disease which killed with no discrimination. What would happen? We do not know how Justinian was treated for the plague, only that the palace was kept isolated, and the palace courtiers feared venturing out, which might have reduced the number of people affected inside the palace. Water and food was retrieved from the palace's own well and the palace's own storage cellars, thereby reducing contamination from outside. But ultimately, Justinian survived because of the healthier diet his position afforded him. But he might also have survived because of architecture. The wind which swept through the palace came not from the streets filled with the dead, but from the gardens and from the sea and the palace itself was built with large windows, allowing for light and fresh air to sweep the interiors. According to some later historians, the city waited for days before receiving the news that the emperor lived and would survive. As relieved as the emperor's loyal subjects might have been, Fear must surely have remained, for the emperor's deliverance had not stemmed the tide of others dying. His life had been spared, but stonemasons still died, so that the city walls could not be prepared for a potential onslaught. Farmers died in droves, and food from the countryside was not delivered, causing a crucial lack of food and soldiers died in copious numbers, so who would be left to defend them? In the end, no battle-hardened enemies knocked down the walls of Constantinople during the spring or summer of 542. Totila of the Ostrogoths concentrated on winning land in Italy, and he was favoured by good fortune in that the Byzantine military leadership was, even at the very height of the plague, completely embroiled in internal conflict as one commander and then another fought for supremacy. This led to badly organized responses from Roman garrisons stationed in Italy, and Totila battled these troops rather than meeting Justinian in Constantinople and the Persians, for their part, chose caution over action and decided to leave the city of Constantinople well alone for fear of spreading the pestilence in their own ranks. 
So, the external threat was halted for a while by the plague. The fighting on both fronts would resume as early as 543, but for now at least, the sharp end of an enemy's sword did not cut short the few Byzantine lives spared by the plague. And the plague raged, and it raged for four long months, and took with it at least half of the 500,000 citizens of Constantinople. As the plague raged in Constantinople, it also landed in Gaul and devastated many Germanic tribes in that area. But not content with that, the plague relentlessly moved onwards to Italy, and from here it went round and round the western lands until at last it paused in its havoc around the year 590. The final numbers for the overall mortality are hard to come by. Numbers were exaggerated by some. The previously mentioned scholar, Procobius, was accused of this. But many deaths were likely underreported. The current consensus estimates that between 25 and 50 million people likely died in the Western European lands between 542 and 590, which was more than half the population of the Western lands at the time. So, in this podcast series, I have until now talked about the when. When did the Justinian plague start? And I have talked about the how. How the bacteria Yersinia pestis was transported on cargo vessels to the city. I have described the what, the symptoms and progression of sickness of the plague. I have also very roughly outlined the world in which the plague unfolded, an empire ruled by a conquest-minded emperor who even at the height of the plague waged war against eastern and western foes. Next time, I shall explore the where, as in where did this calamity originally come from? This means that this series is going to be longer than the two episodes I originally planned. But as ever with history, the more you learn, the more you read, the more there is to explore. And I will ultimately conclude this series with a look at the lasting impact of the Justinian plague on Constantinople and the empire's foes and allies. I hope you liked this episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to Restless Times in History or tell a friend about this podcast. Until next time, I have been Eva and thanks so much for listening.